We are delighted to be joined by John Stevens, National Director of FIEC. John, welcome to Exposit the Word. Thank you, David. Welcome. It's a pleasure and a delight to be with you. Oh, thank you. So, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and the role that you play within the FIEC. Well, I'm the National Director of the FIEC, which, for those who don't know, is the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. Yeah. That's a group of about 620 gospel-centred independent uh, churches across the UK. Um, I've been in that role for 10 years, mm. and the role of the FIEC is really to help those churches work together to serve the uh, cause of the gospel in our nation. Our strapline is independent churches working together to reach Britain for Christ. So we're driven by a desire to want to see the gospel going out. We're aware of the massive need in our nation, yeah. where only about three percent of people know the Lord Jesus as their saviour and lord we want to see faithful thriving growing gospel churches in every community and in every place um, we believe it's a biblical principle that churches ought to be independent self-governing but yet also biblically churches work together in relationship with one another forming partnerships and FIEC is really to, uh, there to help catalyze that uh, mutual support of one for another so that we can strengthen the wider work of the uh, gospel I have the privilege of leading uh, staff team, um, uh, some who are involved in ministry, some who are involved in sort of more practical support, mm. um, helping uh, those churches to be as effective in gospel ministry as they can possibly be. Wonderful. And a little bit about yourself, John. Uh, myself, um, I, I'm sort of uh, married with four children, ranging in age from uh, uh, sort of uh, 18 down to um, uh, 13. Yeah. I was born and brought up in Birmingham um, in a non-Christian family. I was converted when I was a student studying uh, law at university. Um, uh, after that, I kind of um, felt called into full-time Christian ministry. Um, I've uh, uh, kind of had a, a slightly accidental career teaching law in universities for a number of years, yeah, yeah. some of them working bivocationally, helping church plants and support churches during that time. Um, then I was uh, a pastor and one of the um, planting pastors of City Church in Birmingham, where I served for 11 years before then coming to Market Harbour, where the FIEC is based, to take up the role of national director. And uh, at the same time, I then helped to plant a church called Christchurch Market Harbour in the town here, a small market town of about 30,000 people, uh, where I'm one of the um, elders serving our local congregation. John, how, how and when did you lose your Birmingham accent? I'm not sure I ever had a Birmingham accent to the same um, extent. Um, I was, so I say Birmingham, but I grew up originally in Sol Sutton Coalfield and then uh, yeah. sort of Solihull, which is on the southern end. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure I ever had a particularly strong Birmingham accent, or at least I didn't think I did. Yeah. Um, the, sort of at school, I think we were kind of encouraged not to have a Birmingham accent. And as always, <laughs> the Birmingham accent has been subject of some uh, kind of mockery. Yeah. Uh, but funnily enough, when we moved to Market Harbour from Birmingham, um, people thought that we had quite strong Birmingham accents and my kids went to a local school oh, wow. and uh, they were kind of picked up on for having strong Birmingham accents. So maybe we had more of an accent than we thought we did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So how did you first become a Christian then, John? Well, I became a Christian, as I said, when I was at university. Yeah. I'd grown up in a non-Christian home, um, but was taken to a Sunday school as a kid because my parents thought that was a good idea. Yeah. But it was really a liberal Sunday school. I'm not sure I ever really heard the gospel. It was all about morality. And in all honesty, it was kind of a relatively sort of boring going through the motions of services. I did have some Christian input at school from a Christian teacher um, uh, when I was in my early years of secondary school. But then in sixth form, um, I was studying English history and geography. I had an English teacher who was a kind of a, a strong atheist. We were studying a whole load of 1960s nihilist literature. Um, uh, he was very much of the view that kind of Christianity was simply a crutch for the weak. Yeah. And he was the kind of cool teacher. And I was quite influenced by that. Um, and when I was at school, I was um, kind of an atheist. 
I would have seen um, religion as being something for those who are sort of uh, weak in some way or another. So I went up to a university um, uh, kind of to study law, something I wanted to um, do since I'd been about 14. I wanted to be a, a kind of a barrister. Um, I studied at kind of Cambridge um, and then in my college and on my course, there were a number of people who were kind of Christians um, mm. and really from day one of being at university, they started witnessing to me about their Christian faith. So they invited me along to various Christian Union uh, kind of events, to mm. some mission talks. Um, and also I got the opportunity to know them personally and could see the difference that Christ made in their lives. And I think just over a period of time, I began to be confronted by Christ and his claims. I began to understood, understand a bit more. Um, who he was, um, what he'd done through his death on the cross. Um, and, and all I can say is that through hearing the gospel um, explained and taught, um, reading the Bible with uh, kind of one of my friends, um, I heard Jesus speaking to me and convicting me of the need to be forgiven, um, the need to uh, trust in him, the need to um, follow him. So it was really through um, uh, sort of the witness of Christian friends and hearing the gospel clearly preached and proclaimed mm. at a variety of different um, uh, sort of events. Yeah. Um, I think I became convinced that the gospel was true during um, my first or beginning of my second year. I can remember going to a J. John mission yeah. in my second year and kind of almost wanting to get up at the end of every mission uh, meeting and go forwards and confess faith in Christ. Yeah. But in honesty, being a Christian didn't fit with my plan. It didn't fit with my life. Mm. It didn't fit with my career ambitions and I really spent something like 18 months trying to fight God off yeah. and didn't want to follow him because yeah. I knew there'd be a significant cost of doing that both yeah. in friendships family um, obviously a, a certain sense of kind of having been known as an atheist and then turning from that um, but it was at the beginning of my third year that I finally realized that uh, if Jesus is Lord you can't just keep fighting him and it, even though I tried to run away from him he hadn't stopped calling me and at the beginning of my third year, I can describe it as kind of giving in to uh, kind of Jesus' call. And it wasn't a big mission event. It was actually just in the quietness of my own room at college that I prayed to Christ to submit to him as Lord. And that's when I became a Christian. So it was through the sustained witness of people in college. Interestingly, afterwards, I discovered that the guys in Christian Union had been praying for me for a long time. And they were getting frustrated because I kept coming to things and didn't seem to be responding. Yeah. And so they were kind of reaching, what, is he ever going to believe? <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's not, not going to believe. They were yeah. on the point really of giving up and thinking it's not worth it. And I remember going into um, a lecture the day after I'd become a Christian. I was sitting next door to one of my friends who'd been witnessing to him. And at the beginning of the uh, lecture, I just passed him a note just saying, I became a Christian last night. And, and you can imagine we didn't really uh -huh. take in very much of the lecture after that. Yeah, I can imagine. So you had this career mapped out that you was going to have a career in law, yet you then, you then felt the call to ministry. How did that kind of come about? Yeah, and I think in some ways it had actually been part of that whole process of that 18 months of trying to fight God off, because yeah. I think I knew that if Jesus calls you to follow him, you have to follow him wholeheartedly. And in many ways, this was the mid-1980s, the height of Thatcherism, I think material success, uh, I've been very much the idol that I kind of lived for, a kind of academic success and achievement. I've been very much what my parents most wanted. Um, and in some ways, I've been hugely successful in um, uh, that sense. But I began to feel called into full-time Christian ministry. And then I went to a church in kind of Cambridge when I was a student where we were encouraged to think about the possibility of kind of ministry and using gifts in kind of teaching the Bible. Um, I, I think... Um, 
a training in law in many ways gives you some of the key skills that are used in Christian ministry. So I'd spent three years in effect being trained how to interpret texts yeah. and how to study laws yeah. um, and apply them to a kind of everyday life. And in some ways, that's what Bible expositors are doing uh, kind of much of the time. So there's yeah. a natural affinity there. Um, I think um, I was then encouraged. I was reading the Bible with somebody who was training to be an Anglican vicar, um, went along to various events um, at church to think about God's call on your life. And I think over a period of time, I just felt increasingly drawn into um, uh, sort of uh, the possibility of uh, a kind of ministry. I'm not sure at that particular stage my motives were necessarily pure. I think if you've come from a background of high achievement and you suddenly become a Christian, it's kind of quite natural to carry over some of that same ambition in yeah to the, the new environment yeah. um, and um, I didn't end up going into ministry quite as quickly or in quite the way that I thought I was going to um, but I think those seeds were sown um, at that point when I finished my degree in Cambridge I didn't quite know what to do I wasn't really ready yet to go into kind of training to be a, a sort of a barrister or a solicitor um, I, I turned down a couple of jobs that I've been offered by city sort of uh, law firms I didn't quite know what mm. to do so I did a postgrad degree for a year um, in Oxford which was a way of um, in a sense uh, kind of buying a little bit of time to think about um, what I ought to do um, there I was involved in a, a church I was involved in St Deb's Church in the centre of Oxford and again was more involved in ministry was more involved in uh, kind of CU had more opportunity to think about um, full-time ministry I went for a week to London to spend some time in a church working with a vicar to just get some experience yeah. and I think through that process just felt a stronger and stronger call into full-time ministry and was then invited by the church to work for them for a year mm. as a ministry apprentice so it was really through all of those steps of uh, kind of encouragement testing um, uh, that I felt called into full-time Christian ministry. It wasn't an easy thing. When I told my parents that I was thinking of heading into full-time ministry, they were devastated. Yeah. I think for them, having invested a huge amount in enabling me to get the best education they could possibly provide with the hope that that would open up for me opportunities that they hadn't enjoyed, that felt like a, a, a sort of a rejection of all that they'd done, and they were incredibly hostile, mm. and it was very, very difficult. So it wasn't an easy journey into ministry. It was very much against... Um, the sort of the, the opposition and upset of my parents and family yeah. as I headed in that direction. Yeah. You mentioned at this stage you was doing this within the Anglican Church. At what yeah. point did you break away from that and then join the FIEC? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I was um, uh, sort of at St. Ebbs, and at the end of my time, having worked for the church, I actually went forward for selection in the Anglican Church. Um, in, in many ways, that was the um, evangelical world that I'd known up until that stage. Yeah. I'd kind of known people in Anglican ministry, read with people in Anglican ministry. There was a clear route into training. So what I'd hoped to do was work for a couple of years and then go to sort of train for Anglican uh, ministry. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd sort of gone through this selection process, and I was selected, much in a sense to some people's surprise because I was relatively conservative in lots of my views. These were the days in which issues of women's ministry were being debated and the Anglican sort of way of thinking was you've got to be able to sort of respect all the different traditions. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I was always relatively straight about what I kind of believed. So for a while, uh, sort of I, I didn't buy into any of the kind of 
uh, you know, in a sense, keep your convictions hidden in order to get through. Yeah. Um, but I was sort of um, accepted for selection and uh, training. Um, but ironically, almost at the point at which I was doing that, because of some of the debates over women's ministry, I began to have some doubts about um, Anglicanism. Um, I think that exposure to a recognition that there was this breadth of sort of um, Anglican opinion, liberal, Catholic, that was evident on the selection conference that I was on. Mm. That was evident in my dealings with the Bishop of uh, uh, kind of Oxford and, and the DDO. Uh, I think I just became aware that the Anglicans, the evangelical Anglicans weren't the majority of the church, they were just one group um, within um, the church. At the same time, I'd ended up reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones that had just been published um, at that point by Ian Murray, uh, yeah. which kind of opened my eyes to a whole other world of evangelicalism, a whole set of different convictions. And I was really quite convicted by reading that about the necessity for a, a kind of a theological purity of, mm. uh, of, of the church. And I think for a whole variety of reasons that began to kind of caused some of my convictions or assumptions to be questioned. I realised as I read the Bible, more and more I was less and less convinced by arguments in favour of infant baptism, more and more convinced by arguments in favour of um, baptism. Uh, and I think I kind of lost my confidence in the evangelical Anglican narrative that evangelicalism is the norm of Anglicanism. It, 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 it might well have been the case back in the 16th century, yeah. but it seemed to me the reality is that the Anglican Church as it is today is a compromise mm. between different theological wings that are diametrically opposed. And it, it seemed to me that if you wanted to go with any integrity into the Anglican Church, you needed to accept that. Yeah. And I'm afraid that for me, I began to realise that that wasn't something that I was happy to accept. I wanted to minister in a place in which I was free to hold unashamedly biblical convictions. Yeah. Um, I kind of, after I'd left Oxford, I was working in Buckingham for a while and was part of a, uh, an independent Baptist church there. So it was it was a process of gradually um, kind of realising that Anglicanism wasn't for me. So I can say that I turned them down rather than them, them turning me down. Yeah, yeah. Although, to be fair, there were a couple of actually very helpful Anglican friends who at various points, as I discussed this through with them, sort of encouraged me not to go into the church and said, actually, if you've got those growing convictions and concerns, really it wouldn't be right for you to go um, uh, sort of forwards. So I eventually reached a point of realising that Anglican ministry wasn't right for me. I needed to be somewhere where I could be ecclesiologically um, uh, and theologically agreed in the, in the place in which I was ministering. But that came at some considerable cost because mm. what the Anglican Church offered was a clear route into ministry yeah. and funding for training. And for myself, with a non-Christian family who were hostile, a small church that had no vision for training and no funding for training, mm. suddenly I'd gone from a world in which the future seemed very clear yeah. and there was an obvious direction to the uncertainty of a non-conformist world, uh, certainly in evangelical independency, in which there's no clarity about how to be trained and how to be funded for training. What does Christianity look like within the UK now? I think the, I mean, and that's a huge question because Christianity is, of course, way broader than just evangelicalism. Mm. So, broadly speaking, um, uh, kind of Christianity in the UK um, is um, predominantly liberal and cultural. Um, I think, in terms of the 58 or so percent of people who would identify as Christian in the census, I don't think they have any real understanding of what biblical Christianity uh, is. Christianity is perhaps um, attending weddings, funerals, perhaps christenings, um, perhaps. Christianity. Christmas, 
yes, it's it's a very loose understanding of what Christianity is, with no real understanding of the Christian doctrines of salvation, yeah. and very little commitment to the Christian sort of moral teaching, particularly on areas like marriage and and human sexuality. So um, I, I think that um, there's there's this broad cultural residue of Christianity um, uh, in which people have no real understanding of what it what it actually means. And um, the churches, the majority of the churches are in spectacular freefall um, at the moment. So really since the 1950s, there's been decline in uh, sort of church going and church commitment that um, accelerated very quickly in the 1960s with the sexual revolution, a whole younger generation turned away from the church. Um, and that is um, continuing. So um, uh, churches are are uh, sort of increasingly small and uh, uh, elderly. I think I read a recent statistic that in the Anglican Church there are only about 600,000 people or so who attend on an average um, uh, sort of Sunday. Most of the churches are in rapid decline. So recent statistics I read had spoken about the Anglican Church declining over a a period by 5%, Mm -hmm. Catholics by 18%, Methodists by 15%, kind of Presbyterians by 20%, Church of Scotland by 29%. Um, and average churchgoers are now elderly. So the average Anglican is over 65. Yeah. I was hearing recently that in the Diocese of Derby, of all of the churches, half of the churches have nobody under 75 in those churches. And the result of that, just demographically, is over the next 10 to 20 years, there are going to be large swathes of churches that are wiped out simply by the death of their congregations. Mm. So that's kind of the big uh, picture of the massive decline of cultural Christian belief and indeed cultural um, uh, church going. The other side of the story is of the resilience and slow, steady growth of evangelicalism. Mm. So um, uh, actually evangelical churches, churches that take the Bible seriously, that believe that the Bible is the true word of God, who think that personal salvation um, uh, by trusting in the Lord Jesus is essential. Um, those churches are actually um, uh, bucking that trend of decline are, and are in fact seeing slow, steady growth. Mm. Um, roughly speaking, about 3% of the UK population at most would be evangelical believers of all spectrums of evangelicalism. Um, our, our best estimate is that across evangelicals, they're growing by a conversion rate of about 1% um, uh, per year um, at the moment. So we're, we're a very small minority, but against all the predictions that have been being made, um, uh, from the 60s onwards, it's actually evangelical churches that have proved um, resilient to uh, cultural change. Yeah. And I think that, that, of course, shouldn't surprise us as Christians at all. Uh, Jesus, after all, is Lord. He's risen. The gospel is uh, kind of true. And it's the false gospel of liberalism um, and sacramentalism that's kind of collapsing um, uh, uh, around us. Um, perhaps within the evangelical world, again, on the back of kind of what was perhaps being thought in the 70s and the 80s about the kind of charismatic movement and there was a a kind of an assumption that bible-centered conservative evangelicalism was going to die out again my experience has been the resilience and the growth of bible-centered ministries Mm. um uh and i think the conservative evangelical sector um is growing in strength um, and significance. And there's been something of a rapprochement between more charismatic evangelicals and um, conservative evangelicals in the light of the cultural situation we find ourselves in and in the commonality of struggles over issues like hom- sort of human sexuality, transgenderism and marriage. Yeah. 
it's always exciting when you when you look at the FIEC social media account and you see that some more churches have joined the organisation. How does a church become affiliated with the FIEC? Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been wonderful to me as national director that over the last um, uh, kind of 10 years, we've had at least 120 churches that have joined FIEC and wanted to become part of FIEC. Mm. And I think that's because we've regained a vision for the gospel and we've wanted to hold our firm and clear gospel convictions on core matters alongside a generosity on um, secondary issues. And and that's proved very attractive for Bible-centred churches that want to um, to work together. Uh, At one level, it's relatively easy for church to join FIEC. Our our formal criteria are basically the church needs to be independent, so we're churches that aren't part of denominational structures. They need to uh, be committed to our doctrinal basis, which is basically a core evangelical doctrinal basis, commitment to the authority of scripture, obviously to the kind of creeds of the church and kind of the trinity and historic Christology, Mm. um, commitment to justification by faith alone, commitment to the need to um, see regeneration uh, sort of by the Spirit to new birth, commitment to the death of Christ on the cross as a propitiation for our sins, to rescue us from from the judgment to come. So essentially core evangelical convictions. As well as that, we're united as a family of churches. We're a complementarian group of churches. So we believe that um, our pastors and elders in local churches ought to be male. We don't consider that a gospel issue, so we're happy to have fellowship with other churches that would take a different view. But as a family of churches, we've collectively decided that we think that's core to our identity and it's really not possible to have a group of churches where you've got divergent views on the role of women in ministry it Mm. makes it very difficult to then work and cooperate um, uh, together Um, uh, uh, we're united on our our views on uh, kind of um, marriage and human sexuality so um, we believe that marriage is only for um, sort of heterosexual uh, uh, kind of couples and that's the only appropriate context for sexual relationships Um, and we're uh, a group of churches that would not want to enter into um, uh, a kind of cooperation with those who deny our gospel convictions Mm. in mission um, uh, or in worship. So we want to have good relationships with other Christians. We're willing to work uh, sort of um, in uh, kind of co-belligerence on issues of religious freedom, issues of social action with those who would disagree with us. But when it comes to worship and uh, a kind of evangelism. We think it's important to stand with those who hold to the same gospel convictions. Mm. So we can't stand together and pretend um, that we're Christians alongside others who would deny those core truths. Yeah. So in that sense, we're not prepared to engage in ecumenical activity that would compromise the gospel. So the churches have to agree to those positions that have been adopted by the uh, churches. Then they apply to be affiliated. And uh, we'd then engage with the church, Um, we'd take up references, we'd visit the church, we'd want to meet the church, the leaders and the people to answer any questions that they might have. And then if they still want to go ahead with joining the FIEC because they share our convictions, they want to be part of our mission, then we'd welcome them into the fellowship. Yeah, wonderful. How do you govern the FIEC to ensure that churches are consistent within the non-negotiables that you just mentioned? Because as an example, I know you're involved with the Anglican Church, you mentioned that earlier, and as a denomination, they have these 39 articles that were founded to steward and direct how the church should be led. And yet today you see parts of the Church of England that are widely liberal in so many ways. How do you safeguard the FIEC to ensure that it doesn't follow the same course? 
that's a great question. And of course, one of the challenges of independency is that an organisation like FIEC, we're not a denomination, and we have no control over our local churches, and we can't require them to um, do uh, anything. So what we're not mm. able to do is tell a church what its doctrine ought to be and yeah. prevent it from changing its doctrine. But actually, I think we have um, a, a significant element of accountability. And actually, the um, one of the, uh, the aims of FIEC is that together we hold one another accountable. So the way that it works is that every year, every church has to reapply to continue its affiliation of FIEC. Mm. So it's not a case that once a church is affiliated, that's it. And, um, uh, you know, um, under the surface, their positions can change and nobody notices. Every year, churches have to reconfirm that they stand by those core convictions. And if a church has any integrity and it's changed its position, then at that point, it will choose to leave the fellowship. It will um, effectively not renew its membership. And sadly, we've occasionally um, uh, seen that that that, that has been the case. Mm. But basically, so the churches every year will have to reconfirm that they hold to those convictions. And at a local and national level, if an FIEC church were known to be saying that it holds to those convictions but preaching and teaching and practicing something different to them because our churches are concerned about the integrity of the FIEC as a whole I would imagine that somebody would come to us and would say uh, here's this church which is doing something that is contrary to the requirements of membership of FIEC. We've mm. had that happen to us. We've had that happen with a church that's, for example, appointed women leaders or a church that has joined churches together. Yeah. And other churches and others who've heard of that have come to us and have been prepared to say, here's a church that um, isn't abiding by the sort of the commitments that it's made. And at that point, we have the ability to remove them from membership of the fellowship. That's the ultimate sanction um, that we uh, sort of have. But as a family of churches, what attracts churches to us is that firm commitment to core gospel convictions. Mm. Um, And um, I think the constituency as a whole is very determined to make sure that that is not watered down. Yeah, so good. I know you've got a real passion for planting new churches. How is that going and what is the FIEC doing to encourage it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if we're going to reach the nation for Christ, then there's a real need to plant new churches Mm. because there are whole communities or sections of communities that aren't being reached by the gospel. And it's God's plan that they be reached by local churches that are proclaiming Christ. So church planting has actually always been part of the DNA of FIEC, actually right back to 1922. So if you visit the 620 FIEC churches, most of them will have been planted in some time during the last hundred years. Mm. Some will be um, historic, long-established, non-conformist churches but many are churches that were planted often because local Christians saw a need for a housing estate or a community or they left churches that had become liberal and compromised and wanted to find found Bible-centred uh, uh, kind of churches. Um, but I think certainly in the last um, 15, 20 years, church planting has kicked up a pace again. I think that particularly for conservative evangelical churches, the 1970s and 1980s were a period in which um, kind of the churches were more on the back foot. They'd seen lots of people leave and go to the charismatic movement. Mm. Um, uh, Survival was more the order of the day. By the time we got into the mid-1990s and onwards, I think um, 
conservative evangelical churches were growing, grasping the gospel need, and were beginning to plant and start new churches. And FIEC has certainly been um, part of that. We don't centrally plant churches, so we tried that as a strategy in the past, but we found that it's much more helpful to envision and encourage our churches to be planting. Mm. So really, FIEC centrally is much more about catalyzing church planting by placing before our churches the needs, the opportunities, connecting uh, people um, sort of up who have a vision uh, for uh, church planting. And we're seeing church planting in all sorts of different ways. We've seen church plants into city centres, into student communities. We're increasingly seeing church plants into estates and more deprived communities. And there's a real heart at the moment to want to be reaching all different kinds of social uh, groups uh, across the country. We work with partners like um, 20 Schemes in Scotland, um, like X29, like Commission uh, kind of in, in London, Birmingham, 2020. Lots of those organisations have uh, many FIEC churches that are part of them um, as they seek to work together in uh, church uh, planting. Roughly speaking, in the past few years, we've seen about 17 new FIEC churches planted a year, Mm. which has been really, really encouraging um, uh, sort of to us. Lots of churches have planted, perhaps because they've seen the need or because their own congregation has uh, uh, kind of grown. A few years ago, we had an initiative that said, here are 50 places that we think particularly need gospel churches because either there aren't any or Mm. there's an underrepresentation for the size of the population Mm. and the constituency was praying for those places and I'm delighted that quite a number of plants have taken place into those very communities over the last um, uh, five or so uh, years. At the moment I think there's been a little bit of a slowdown in church planting more generally I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think that lots of churches that could plant have planted. And I think often they found that the cost of planting has been greater than they thought in that it's taken longer for the sort of the sending church to recoup and uh, regain new people. Mm. So the idea of kind of constantly replanting, some have slowed down on that as they kind of realised that that's not quite as possible. Um, I think some churches have focused more on growing one central church rather than planting off um, other other churches. They've seen some of the benefits of scale mm. uh, that can be achieved in, in, in ministry. I think planting um, has sometimes been quite cost um, intensive, particularly if full-time workers are being provided to support plants. And, and frankly, there's, there's, there's a lack of resources to enable that to be done um, mm. again uh, and again. And I think we may need to rethink some of our models of ministry to be able to do more in the way of bivocational planting that doesn't require significant financial support. Yeah. So church planting is very much on the radar as a key gospel strategy. It's happening all around the country. I think there are probably a few challenges in church planting um, at the moment, um, uh, and it's not quite um, as easy as, as maybe it was 10 years ago yeah. to get plants up and running. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the ageing population um, within UK churches is, is getting older, and you've also mentioned as well that when you were um, associated with the Anglican Church, there was a clear route to ministry. Um, what What's the FIEC doing to encourage training and development of of people that do feel that there's a calling um, into ministry thank you well again i think that's something that's significantly changed over the last um sort of uh, 10 years mm. um 
the change started e- even before that. And I think in many ways, actually, um, non-conformists and people within FIEC have seen the benefit and value mm. of high-quality biblical training for a lifetime of ministry, particularly in a secular environment yeah. where the challenges are that, that much greater. Um, in some ways, the history and tradition of non-conformity in the 20th century was really to decry the value of proper training. The model was the Lloyd-Jones self-taught uh, leader. There were lots of um, uh, FIEC pastors who had trained themselves. Mm. There were perhaps limited opportunities for training because in the 20th century, many of the colleges became kind of liberal and you didn't go to gain a a sort of a proper biblical um, uh, kind of training. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, in the late 20th century, that began to change in the Anglican world with the influence of Moore College in Australia and then Oak Hill in London, Mm. which began to model the significance of a real a thoroughgoingly biblical uh, training for ministry. Quite a number of um, uh, kind of guys in FIEC trained at Oak Hill um, and really benefited from it. Um, the kind of churches that were in sort of student city centres probably had more of a culture of raising up people and sending them to train. Uh, and really over the last 20 years, there's been a massive improvement in the range of training options available, whether it be colleges like Oak Hill that have opened up to independence as well as to Anglicans, mm-hmm. whether it be um, uh, sort of the development of, for example, Union in South Wales, uh, whether it be the kind of the emergence and growth of London Seminary, um, Edinburgh Theological Seminary in uh, sort of Scotland, the Free Church College is now much more um, sort of actively seeking to train independence for ministry um, as well. And then there's been a growth of a whole level of kind of mid-range local training courses, um, whether Cornhill in London, gospel partnership training courses around the country, and obviously the rise of distance learning, uh, web-based uh, learning, mm-hmm. learning communities, uh, and a mix and match of part-time and uh, full-time residential training. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that's changed has been a, a proliferation of training options that can suit people coming from different backgrounds at different ages with different life circumstances mm. that enables them to get more of a biblical uh, kind of training. And in FIC, we've rejoiced to see that happen. We've encouraged it to um, happen. And so we've been able to, in a sense, put training on the map for our churches mm. by, in a sense, showing people the benefits of biblical training, helping them understand what options there are, working mm. with the, those colleges to make sure that they're meeting our needs. We've also... Um, sought to raise money to help support people in training. Mm. So we set up a training fund. Trevor Archer was our first training director. And sort of um, over the last 10 years or so, we've been able to invest about a million and a half pounds in helping people who want to be trained for yeah. full-time gospel ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, it's it's been a culture shift that's been made possible by greater provision of biblical training, mm. but just also a, a constituency-wide recognition of the importance of that training. So um, I I would say that with an FIEC at the moment, amongst the younger generation, say those who are under 40, Mm. there are very few who are going into ministry who have not had some kind of formal training in biblical ministry to equip them for their their work. I think that's just brilliant. Yeah, so good. The UK has this ecumenical flavour that you mentioned earlier on across many of the denominations. And they we're even beginning to see interfaith partnerships where the Church of England look increasingly to partner with Muslims and they've even hosted shared prayer days. You've got the lead pastor of Hillsong, um, Brian Houston, saying that Muslims and Christians serve the same God. What's your opinion about this? Yeah, well, I 
remember actually I was talking about my ACAM, my selection conference for the Anglican ministry way back in, oh, uh, sort of the very early 1990s. I remember being asked mm. to chair a discussion on whether we should have joint prayer meetings with people from other religions. Mm. And unsurprisingly, I said, we don't serve yeah. the same God, so how can yeah. we come together to pray yeah. and worship the same God? Um, uh, 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 God has made himself known um, uniquely in Jesus Christ. Mm. The only God there is, is the uh, sort of God the Father, who is the Father of the Son, the Lord Jesus, um, and um, uh, both of whom have sent the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God revealed in, in the Bible. Mm. And it's not simply a question of what the names of God are or the language of God. God is the God who has revealed himself uh, through um, the Lord Jesus. Yeah. And any other uh, kind of God is simply a distortion of that one true God who is revealed through Jesus. So um, uh, I don't think we can say that sort of Muslims and others worship the same God. They don't worship the um, sort of same God under some sort of um, uh, kind of just sort of ignorant uh, sort of misunderstanding of who he really is. Mm. Actually, the Bible would describe all religion other than the worship of the biblical God as being a form of idolatry. Yeah. The gods that are worshiped are human, they are man-made, they are distortions of the uh, real God who's revealed in Scripture. Mm. And the Bible would be unashamed in saying that behind that false worship stands uh, a kind of a demonic, satanic deception. Mm. So it, it seems to me that we, one of the things we have to stand firm for, and that Christians have historically stood firm for, is the unique revelation of God in Jesus, yeah. and the uniqueness of salvation in the name of Jesus. There is no name under heaven by which men may be saved other than Jesus. It seems to me the Bible teaches that the way we receive by salvation um, uh, is by conscious faith in the name of Jesus, confessing him as Lord, yeah. believing in our hearts that he has risen from the dead. Yeah. So um, how can Muslims worship the same God when they believe that Jesus didn't die on the cross and Jesus isn't risen from the dead? Mm. At that point, it's the worship of a very different uh, God who gives a very different sort of system um, for uh, salvation. Yeah. So um, in our pluralistic world, there's immense pressure to try to generate peace, harmony in society by saying that we're all basically the same. I think the biblical Christian would say that that's actually a false route to go down and mm. is a denial of reality. Mm. Muslims don't believe they worship the same God as uh, kind of uh, Christians. Yeah. And in a sense, this ecumenical outlook is a uniquely Christian um, perspective. Uh, it seems to me that actually Christians um, biblically have the ability to both hold together the unique truth of the revelation of God in Jesus, mm. but actually a generosity and a toleration and freedom of those who hold different views. And it seems to me that true peace and harmony in society is better achieved by acknowledging our difference um, and um, uh, uh, sort of a sense allowing others the freedom to believe what they um, uh, sort of want to believe mm. without pretending that it's the same belief yeah. or that it's a saving belief. Um, I think there's an honesty and an integrity in that, um, which is far more likely to lead to um, peace um, within wider society mm. than a pretense that we all basically believe the same things. Yeah. How do Christians evangelise in a postmodern world? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think that... The answer to that is how we evangelize in every world. So there are challenges um, to evangelism every generation. They're, mm. they're subtly different. Mm. But basically evangelism is telling the good news of the Lord Jesus, the one who is 
uh, kind of risen from the dead, who is reigning and ruling, who is coming in, uh, coming as judge, um, who is going to pour out wrath on a world that's rebelled against him and rejected him, and makes us the offer of surrendering and receiving salvation by putting our faith and trust in him. And that, that gospel message is the same gospel message for every uh, generation. And I think sometimes we can be too hung up on the apologetics mm. and thinking that somehow or other what sort of we need to do is demolish the arguments of the world and show them how logical and reasonable Christianity is. Yeah. We need to remember that actually the power of the gospel is in the proclamation of yeah. that gospel message. Yeah. And as we tell the truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts people in their hearts of the truth of that message. The Holy Spirit is the one who uh, brings them to new birth and brings them to uh, sort of faith. So I think we need to have a confidence that even in a postmodern world, um, even when people don't believe in the idea of truth, even when maybe they have much more experience of pluralism and other beliefs, even when the plausibility structures of Christian belief have been sort of taken away by the culture, the gospel is still true. And people, when they're confronted with the claims of Jesus, are by the Holy Spirit convicted and brought to new life. So I think we need to not make evangelism more complicated than it really is. Mm. Uh, And my experience would be that the majority of people are converted, not by clever apologetic arguments, but they're converted by the simple witness and testimony of a Christian friend Mm. who shared Jesus uh, with them. And by the work of the Spirit, they became convinced of the truth Mm. of what they were being told. And then they went on to investigate it further. Now, that is not to say that there isn't great importance in every generation to be also tackling the the key philosophical challenges that are presented to the Christian faith. We need to expose the philosophical and the logical and the moral bankruptcy of the culture in which we're preaching the gospel. And that was true for Paul, for example, when he was engaging with the pagan world um, that we read about in the book of Acts. He wanted to expose the folly and the foolishness of um, their idolatry and their philosophical systems Mm. and to show them um, the truth of Christ in contrast to that. So we do need to um, uh, sort of be aware of what are the thought forms of um, our postmodern world, if only so that we can present the gospel in ways that are comprehensible and understandable to the culture around us, so that we don't make um, uh, assumptions that mean that we're misheard uh, or that we don't communicate as effectively um, as we uh, could do. And we need to remember that not everybody is a postmodern. So we're living in a world in which there's a variety of different sort of philosophical views. If you're working in a community that's predominantly sort of um, a Muslim community, postmodernism is not the major problem you're wrestling with yeah. in um, a kind of your um, evangelism. So we need a, an ability to recognize different cultural contexts yeah. and to bring the gospel to bear in all of those contexts. So I think what I'm trying to say is there are always certain intellectual challenges to the gospel in any particular um, uh, culture and context. In the Reformation, the, the kind of magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church was the major uh, obstacle. Mm. Um, uh, perhaps in the uh, kind of 19th century, in the 20th century, the power of the Enlightenment, evolution, uh, kind of scienceism, modernism was the major challenge. There are, there are different challenges that we face today, yeah. and it's right for us to deal with those. But we're not going to find some intellectual answer that is suddenly the key that means that people are sort of persuaded to believe we need to have confidence in the preached word the shared testimony um, of jesus and the powerful work of the spirit to open the eyes of um, the blind intellectual arguments will never open the eyes of the blind only in the end the spirit can do that yeah so good 
John, who's been the biggest influence in your life and ministry? Um, that's a really big question. I always hate these kind of favourite <laughs> questions yeah. because, um, in a sense, I'm, I'm unconscious that I am the result of a smorgasbord of yeah. all different sorts of influences that have contributed yeah. um, to me. So I don't really have one single person who I would say has been um, the influence that has most shaped me. Mm. Um, if you want to say what, what have been my strongest theological uh, kind of influences in terms of shaping my theological understanding, I'd say that's a mix of kind of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jim Packer, Don Carson, in terms of ministry and practice, um, uh, sort of, um, I would say that kind of um, Philip Jensen, and then out into the Gospel Coalition, people like um, uh, sort of Tim Keller, John Piper, mm. um, and others have been significant influences in shaping and developing uh, my uh, kind of ministry. In terms of people who've had a particular influence on me, um, a guy called Chris Hobbs, who's vicar of uh, St Stephen's Church in Selly Park, has been a huge influence in terms of he was someone I read with when I was first a Christian, has been a real model of ministry and faithful ministry over many years. I've got a fraternal group of about six other ministers who appears that I meet with every six months. They've been a hugely significant influence yeah. in helping me to um, think things uh, kind of through. Um, I, I've benefited kind of immensely from working with colleagues both in Birmingham and in um, kind of the FIC here. So um, in Birmingham, I planted a church with Neil Powell and with Hugh Thompson. They were a huge influence as we worked together here in uh, Market Harbour. I've got the opportunity now to work with Johnny Prime and Adrian Reynolds, and that's been a, yeah. a massive uh, influence in terms of helping um, shape um, myself. Um, uh, guy called Tim Ward, who works at Oak Hill College in London. Um, he was at school with me. We both became Christians while we were at university and met up again when I was studying in Oxford. Yeah. His support and kind of influence and sharing theological discussion over many years has been a huge um, uh, kind of influence in, in my thinking. So I, that just gives you a range. I, as I said, I wouldn't say any one person. I, I've kind of, in a sense, drawn from that sort of range of people, all of whom have helped me in my thinking. Um, and I'm always looking for who else can I learn from? Who yeah. else can I benefit from? John, I know you've got a, a website that you blog from, and I know that you're on social media as well. Um, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, well, you can get with me in touch with me direct on my FIEC uh, kind of email address, which is simply john at fiec.org.uk. As you say, I've got a, a, a sort of a blog which is called Dissenting Opinion, um, uh, which is basically at www.john-stevens.org, um, and um, that kind of has a range of different things that I write. I tend to write a mix of comment on the news, comment on cultural things, comment on ministry things, comment on FIEC, yeah. sort of comments on bits of the Bible and things that have struck me. Um, how often I'm, I'm able to post kind of is slightly reflected <laughs> by how busy the rest of life is. Yeah. And the current period with coronavirus, that's been a little bit um, uh, kind of slower than I, I would like it to have been. But those are the main things. I'm on Twitter and Facebook, which often links to both my blog and a whole variety of other things I've read that are interesting. I try to post out there things that I think are significant and interesting. I don't necessarily agree with everything that I would kind of point people to, but I point people to things I think that are stimulating yeah. um, and that will help us to develop biblical uh, thinking um, for ministry in the contemporary context. Wonderful. I'll put links to all of those things that you've just mentioned in the description below to make it easy for people to find. John, I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for your work. And it's so encouraging to hear that so many people are listening to faithful biblical sermons 
um, uh, and that's just a wonderful encouragement. And I know that's been a huge benefit to many, yeah. particularly when in this coronavirus period, perhaps they haven't been able to have access to um, their own regular uh, church preaching. Thank you for what you've been doing. Oh, thank you so much, John. Thank you.